I'm concerned that not enough, us, not enough of us have learned the art of play. Play is the joy of affirming our right to be alive. I'd like to, in the next hour and a half, show you some ways that we can rediscover play, joy, balance, and health by re-examining who we are in the context of our belief system. Now, all of us belong to a paradigm, and some of us to different paradigms. A paradigm comes from the Greek, meaning paradigma or pattern. Within that pattern, we are told all of our beliefs, all of our realities, all of our questions, all of our answers, all of our security, all of our needs are going to be found. And we believe that. So from earlier on in childhood, we trust implicitly in the first god and goddess that we see, hear, touch, smell, feel, love, and bond with, our mother and father. Assuming that our mother and father have lived a good life in meaning not just good as far as morals, but good in the way that they've made judgments, judgments that allow us to grow because they've grown, to be free because they're free, autonomous because they're autonomous, then we will be a manifestation of that. That does occur, but rarely. More likely than not, we are the products of dysfunction. But for decades, we denied our dysfunction. We disguised it. In effect, we turned everything inside, and we processed our dysfunction in a way that allowed us to continue to exist. After all, if your mother or father told you that they didn't like something you were doing, you stopped doing it because you knew if you didn't stop doing it, you weren't going to get love. Now look at a child. A child will pick anything up. They'll feel it. They'll smell it. They'll taste it. They'll throw it in the floor. They'll step on it. They'll fall on it. They'll rub it on everybody. They become bonded with it. And that's why children by nature are not hostile to the world. They're open to the world. They don't want to see anything hurt. They want to attach. They want to understand. They want to be a part of life. Have you ever watched a little child? They get up, they'll dance around, they'll fall down, they'll laugh, they'll get back up, they dance around. We forget how to dance as adults. And if you live in Connecticut, you don't even try. <laughs> Have you ever watched someone from Connecticut dance? They're so ainly retentive. Biffy, Miffy, am I doing it right? <laughs> we forget how just to be open and watch people on a dance floor. They'll never do the mm, same step a thousand times all night long. Same step. Do you ever watch that? Same step. So boring. People want to know why I dance with this woman I dance with because she is free. I mean, and she dances. She's a great dancer. This Virginia Reed I dance with. Never does the same step twice. Someone else never does anything but the same step. Why? What would happen if they went from here to here, back and forth? They're going to fall over. They're going to. No, they don't want to do anything that is not a controlled, absolutely bounded, and guarded, and predictable movement. And that's why they eat the same type of breakfast, lunch, and dinner, wear the same type of clothes, cut their hair in a particular way. Everything's predictable. And it's not that that's their fault. And it's not that that's bad. It's just limiting. And it's a form of dysfunction. Because it's not honest. Because all of us, every human being, no matter how uncool and unoriginal they may seem on the outside, 
Inside, everybody wants to dance like a kid with life. They want to experience life. But we grow up in cultures that can repress that joy of the child and the wonderment of exploration. We kill the child earlier on, or we tame the child. Did you ever watch a child having fun with food? It's adorable to watch a child. They're sitting there, and first they're starting to eat it. Then they like to spit it out. And they look at it, and they squish it. And they squish it, and they squish it, and they put it on here and there and all over. And they laugh, and it's funny. And then they spit it at you. <laughs> and if you have an, uh, a friend there, a family member, like an in-law, especially mother-in-law's the worst, right? And they will, they will watch the kid, and the kids sing if they can spit far enough to hit the mother-in-law. And of course, the mother-in-law is saying, that is not the way you were taught. Are you going to do anything? Yes. Don't spit. Now that hurts. And you're a little kid. And suddenly the love and the bonding is not there. The little hurt's there. And then you start to attach the hurt with don't do. And so everything that becomes a hurt is a don't do. So you, on the inside, have a secret. The secret is you want to spit, you want to play, but you're not going to do it where anyone's going to take anything away from you, including love and bonding. Now, we do the same thing. You'll watch some guy do something that is completely stupid, and everybody laughs, and everybody thinks, God, why didn't I do that? Because he had the courage to do it. He didn't care the consequences. You still care about what people think. And think of how many things in your life are based upon what other people are thinking, so you adjust yourself to other people's acceptance of you. Therefore, other people have more control over your life than you do over your own life. I'm hot in this. Now, what I'm concerned with is that I want to rediscover our inner child. I want us to play with life. Trouble is, some adults get so serious that they don't even know how to play. They play too hard. They play too tough. They play too intense. Go out to California. Go to Laguna Beach. I was just out in Laguna Beach. People play, and it's fun. They, well, I don't care if they're playing on the beach or they're uh, surfing. And there's a camaraderie. Everybody gets into someone else's play. And you can see there's genuine joy. Or you go up to Venice Beach. And up in Venice Beach, by the way, Venice Beach is in a very unusual place. New Yorkers really, they have to go to a chiropractor after coming back from Venice Beach because they're always, <laughs> oh, look, look, a naked butt. Yeah, and people walk around with their butts hanging out. And there, it's very cool. And here, we're just walking around looking at this, because we could never imagine walking around. Could you imagine Donald Trump with his butt out? <laughs> I can't. But there, everybody does it. And everybody skates. And you'll see an 80-year-old woman on skateboard, you know, with colored uh, sneakers and, you know, a bandana. And everybody thinks, that's cool. Here, she'd be in Bellevue. <laughs> what were you doing on a skateboard at 3 o'clock in the morning? Huh? You're crazy. We got to put you on drugs and give you electroconvulsive therapy because we're ainly retentive and we're doctors and we consider you being a female a disease. We're the cure. They have this strange notion of conformity and the muscle guys, the muscle guys is very fun to watch because again, they're honest. They're honest in their competition. They're competing. They're competing for our attention. They're competing against each other. But their competition is honest because it's out front. They're walking around, 
and they'll walk right over to you. And it's like a little area. Venice Beach is, Venice Beach is actually smaller in the muscle area than half the size of this room. And it's about, oh, a couple miles long. And all kinds of shops and health food stores and junk food restaurants and vendors and poets and palm readers. Everything in the world's down this place and the ocean's on one side. And uh, you can tell the tourists from the native population. Uh, the natives are hanging out and, and are relaxed. And there's an ease about them, how they walk, move, their body language. And you can see the tension and the trauma in a lot of the tourists. But the muscle guys will come right over so you can feel their muscle, like, feel that muscle. So you'll go over and you'll feel their damn muscle, like, what are you doing feeling this man's muscle? I don't know, I, he stuck it out so I felt it. And it's amazing, it's amazing to watch this. And suddenly the guys come over and say, feel my, feel my rib, look at those muscles. And you're over there, you know, going like this, like playing his stomach muscles or something. And, but they love it, like they're grooving on their body. And they're saying, I love my body, isn't it beautiful? Look at my legs, my ass, my, I'm great. This is the way a body should be. Don't you wish you had one? And you're thinking, God, that's a great body. I wished I had one. But it's a healthy competition because it's not meant to make you feel bad about the body you have. Where here, you go into the office, how do you feel? Oh, I feel, I feel so bad. I've got this. It's the, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ucking this day. It's the, uh, the weather, uh, my stomach, uh, I got the hemorrhoids in the butt. I can't, uh, I can't lift anything. I got paralysis. I got the elbow. <laughs> and that's the way people are. So everybody feels bad about everybody and says, compassion, we have to give you compassion. Oh, too bad, you feel so bad. And so we extend ourselves. Now, think of what happens when Margaret comes into the office. Margaret's just come from the vertical club. Margaret has a body like a goddess. Margaret doesn't have any fat on her body and she walks in and that bitch, look at her. What a slut. Who's she been sleeping with to get that body? Has the IQ of a toad? Huh? No, no one's going to go up and say, oh, Margaret, you've got a nice body. No, because it's negative competition. It's, I don't like what you have because it makes me feel envy. You see, there's a difference between envy and jealousy. Envy is a very depreciated sense that you are not living up to your potential. So you are feeling dysfunctional because someone else is manifesting something that makes you feel that you're under-manifesting. That's envy. Jealousy, on the other hand, is based on the notion of greed. You have something I don't have. Therefore, I want what you have in order to feel that I have something that equalizes us. We don't like anyone in our society that makes us feel unequal. Therefore, people who are more educated, who have money, who have success, are either envied or there's jealousy, and it can be both. And it's both are very unhealthy for the person who is competing. And that competition is a silent competition, and it's a negative competition, and it's a fatalistic competition because you never feel good about who you are because who you are obviously has never been good enough throughout your life just to be happy and whole and enough to be loved. And that starts in early childhood when you start carrying on the secret game of complying with what your parents are telling you is the only way that they're going to give you love. And without that love, then you're a nobody. 
because the people who are loved are somebody. So the person who comes in who says, what a day I've had. I had a wonderful night. I feel so good. I'm smiling all morning. You're thinking, I didn't have a good night. I had a quart of ice cream and Oreo cookies and talked with negative and depressing people on the phone and heard my mother say for the 16th time, why am I not married? I'm trying to make my mother's ego feel good by appeasing her need for me to be married so she no longer has to feel as if she's a failure as a mother because she didn't produce a daughter who was attractive enough and successful enough to be acceptable in marriage. Therefore, my mother's deficiency in ego is causing me to eat hog and dogs, get fat, go to work, feel envy, feel jealousy, look at some other woman, and decry that other woman for being happy, healthy, wholesome, and that is all in silence. And it happens all the time, right? Men are a little different, by the way. Men don't do that. Men, you, of course, you would have a certain percentage. Men put their competition out. And the way men compete is that they use their competition to manifest what they consider are the higher masculine ideals. And interestingly enough, men will respect other men. There will not be the envy in it uh, when other men succeed. So even in races, you will see your top athletes working with one another, encouraging one another in a race, holding the other person in a race. I've seen this repeatedly in a race done in Washington a couple of years ago. I was in a 20K national championship. And there were like six athletes going, trying to make the national team. And one of those athletes had already made the national team. And he was uh, Doug Fournier, and a very good athlete. And as the other athletes were going, he kept them in the pack. They kept working with each other. And one of the athletes got stitched and, and couldn't hold the pace and started to drop back. He spun around, ran back, picked up this athlete, and encouraged him and in a half mile got the athlete back in and the athlete was able to make it by one second. That's the kind of healthy competition that bonds people instead of separates people, identifies a cooperative spirit where competition is healthy. You see, we've got this idea that all competition is negative. So siblings compete, uh, people compete in relationships for power, position, instead of realizing we don't have to compete in any negative sense. Just bring what you're going to compete about out into the open. Share it. Be honest with it. Bring it right up front. And make it something that allows you as a human being to grow. Where if you do not succeed at what you're competing at, you don't feel worse about yourself. You merely say, I've grown from the experience. When I'm in a race, my object is not to beat anyone in that race. You'll never see me competing against people in the race. I work on myself. Before I go in the race, I know what I want to achieve, what I want to accomplish, and that's what I work towards. So I learn something even when I don't do well. And even when I do do well, other athletes don't feel envy or greed about it or, or anger or hostility because they know how hard you had to work to do it. Yeah, it feels good to win, but these people don't feel bad because someone else won. And there's a genuine spirit of, 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 true, uh, of true competition. Yet in the workforce, in the home environment, in our lives, we're constantly competing for attention, for love, as if there's a finite amount. And if we don't get ours, there's none left. 
and we don't know what to do to prove that we're deserving of love, attention, health, happiness. So we end up dysfunctional. So what I'd like to do is show you some of the ways that we can reclaim health and reclaim function in a society that is not going to change to meet our needs, nor should we change to meet society needs. We should change to meet our real needs. I'm describing a series of questions that we can ask in our journal. And journal writing is one of the most therapeutic and healthy ways that we as individuals can grow. Because once you ask a question, you then set a dialogue into motion with your inner self. It is a purely introspective process. Versus if you are always going out for counseling or talking off someone or calling someone about your problems, then you're taking the problem to an external point and asking something outside of yourself to understand something inside. I'm suggesting that before we do that, and that's not to suggest that counseling can't help, it can. Try the internal process first. Create the dialogue with yourself, but a dialogue you possibly haven't had before. That's why these questions are important. Don't worry about not reading what's on the chart because I will go over it. First, how do we respond to others when they discount our realities. Now I'm showing you different ways that we create disharmony, imbalance, that leads to patterns of behavior that causes dysfunction and disease. If you have people in your life who discount or deny your reality, that is a person that if you continue to have in your life in the way that you have in the past, will forever be allowing you only disharmony and dysfunction. An example. Let's say that someone, uh, you say to someone that you believe in paradox. And you come from a family where there is a rigid, linear, left brain thinking father. Now, if you're a son, earlier on by the age of two, you push yourself away from the mother. You no longer want to be smothered in her love. Instead, you're looking at the autonomy and independence of the father. The father will not bond with you on the emotional level, but rather try to guide you on his intellectual and ego level. He'll therefore give you a set of do's and don'ts, to which the father will only respond to you, generally speaking, if you follow the do's and the don'ts. So one day you tell the father, Dad, I believe that through the idea of giving up the fight, I'm going to gain something. I've been banging my head against the wall trying to do something that's not me. And I feel that if I surrender the need to prove that anymore, I can devote my time and attention to something I really feel good about. Let's say it's football. Dad wants you to be a football star because he was or wasn't, and so it's the ego. You become the proxy ego. And you say, Dad, I don't want to be a football star. I want to be a pianist. The dad says, a pianist? I mean, what's masculine about a pianist? Immediately, the dad is starting to give you the hidden agenda, undermining, discounting, and denying your reality. Now, if you are at all vulnerable, and if you need your father at that point in your life to continue to reaffirm that you're okay, in all likelihood, you will say, well, you're right, maybe I shouldn't do that, and you'll continue trying to do something, maybe even succeed at it, maybe even be very good at it, but it's not you, it's him. Or it could be the same way, her. How many times have you women done things to get your mother's approval 
even though you knew that you were doing something that was internally deceptive. We live through our parents' egos all of our lives. <clears throat> How do we encourage functional or dysfunctional relations? One way we encourage it is by not affirming what's real to us and stating it to other people. For instance, all of us should be able to tell people what our real needs are, to define them, and then look for relationships where people will acknowledge and honor those real needs. What's the purpose of being in any relationship, work, family, friends, any relationship where your real needs are not being addressed or even acknowledged, and where artificial or socially contrived needs are the only ones that are being recognized? You're going to be a completely unfulfilled person. And the longer that you encourage someone to believe that you're happy with what is, the longer you encourage dysfunctional relationships. How many times, for instance, have you been told in your life that what you're thinking is stupid or isn't right or let, us, let, me, let me set you straight? No, you, you're wrong. Let me, and suddenly, you're wrong. Let me set you straight. That transgresses all intellectual, emotional boundaries. You're assaulted on a personal level that you don't count. You're invalidated. Well, if you continue to trust this invalidating process, that the only time you have any merit, any validity, is when someone else that you're trying to appease agrees with you, then you know what you're going to do. If you're insecure, you're going to be living your life by looking very carefully and listening very carefully to see how other people view reality. You're going to try to match their reality through your actions so they continue to accept you and endorse you. Because the moment you go against someone else's views and beliefs, you are discounted. Look at every single institution. There's a woman down in the uh, Amish country who decided to challenge, quietly challenge, the subservient role of the women in the, uh, in the hierarchy. Why shouldn't women have a right to be a part of the governing process? She was told that that was disobedient and that she should suffer. So first they gave her a reprimand and admonished her. Then when she persisted, they excommunicated her, her husband divorced her, and her children abandoned her. So strong was the belief that every single friend and family member turned against her. She was out. What had she done that deserved this, this reaction? She challenged authority. Look what happened to Erwin Schiff, who challenged the IRS. They throw him in prison and tax him. Look what happens when they challenge anyone in the military. They court-martial them. Look at what happens when you challenge the politics. The FBI uh, does numbers on you, as they did in violating our civil rights, which by law they shouldn't have done. So the very agency that's supposed to be the most impeccably pure agency committed consistent crimes against its own public with immunity. No one was prosecuted. Yes, there was evidence, there was testimony, there was documentation spying against people who had a different right and a right, or I say a different view, uh, of exercising their right of what we should be doing with our political policy. If you were against the war, you were an enemy of this country. Therefore, only those people who supported the war were considered acceptable citizens. The mere right of challenge itself was considered unacceptable, hence un-American. So the whole idea of living in a democracy that was based upon our freedom of choice became a mockery. We haven't had freedom of choice in decades. Look at the freedom of choice in medicine. 
Any patient who goes to a doctor who uses any form of nutritional counseling or vitamin therapy is considered delusional, misguided, and the doctor, a quack and a charlatan. And the boards, the pain boards come in, the pain boards of the medical state, uh, medical state licensure boards and says, you're not practicing medicine according to our standards, but I'm practicing to heal the patient. That's not important. There's a doctor in California. This doctor was not treating cancer. The doctor was treating nutrition. People would go to their oncologist and get chemotherapy or radiation. Then they would go to this doctor and get their immune system built up. This doctor helped over 260 patients. One morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, seven marshals with guns broke into his house, arrested him and his wife, handcuffed them. He was charged with a felony. At his trial, and it was fraud, and uh, at his trial, they convicted him. Why? Because his patients said that he was a bad doctor and it hurt them? No. Because the medical literature showed that he was using unacceptable or unproven methods? No. Medical literature supported nutrition, immune system enhancement. Because his colleagues wouldn't support? No. He had a lot of people coming forward to testify that what he was doing made sense. No, he was convicted and sent to hard labor where he broke up rocks on a chain gang for one reason, because he was doing something that was different. He was healing with something other than chemotherapy, which does not heal surgery and radiation. And so strict and so Machiavellian, authoritarian, and draconian are the laws in California about being in the medical monopoly that anyone who steps foot out of that, no matter how successful they are at helping a disease, must be destroyed. And every doctor who tried since then was also destroyed. Now, at no point did anyone in the church, in the political community, in the educational community, in the media, no one came forward to say, hold on a second, this isn't right. A doctor is helping people and they're getting well, and we're crucifying a doctor for getting someone well? That doesn't make sense. No, of course it doesn't. But again, nothing in our paradigm can be challenged if you're told the paradigm cannot be challenged. So no matter how many paradoxes, contradictions, inconsistencies, no matter how much failure you have within your existing belief system, it is the belief system that you will live by, not your own mind, spirit, and emotional dictates. That's why we've been a constant prisoner to disease, because our society produces disease. The belief systems produce disease. The belief system says we have an economic belief system that the industry and its products are sovereign. Therefore, if the meat people tell you to eat meat and you eat meat and you get cancer, and if everybody got cancer and there was a cause and effect that was absolutely unequivocal, we still must deny the cause and effect because we've accepted the meat industry. And if a doctor did butchery on every woman and did radical mastectomies when none were indicated, you still could not do anything about it with those doctors because we, the medical paradigm says that doctors can do no wrong if they're practicing these procedures. Because to acknowledge guilt would be to acknowledge the entire medical model is wrong, which means medicine is wrong, which means the entire hierarchy is wrong, which means the leaders are wrong. So they have to deny it. The same way with mercury fillings. 
mercury fillings is a form of dental uh, irresponsible uh, procedure. You're putting a highly toxic metal in someone's mouth that is leaching out. It causes physiological dis uh, problems. We have proof of that. That's in the scientific literature, just as DDT was in the literature and thalidomide was in the literature. We have, and DES, we have the proof. But now to say your paradigm is wrong is to say that everyone in that paradigm is wrong. You have to change the economic, the political, and the, the, the functional way the paradigm exists. No one's going to do that. There is no paradigm that changes. Right now we have no one to fight. The Cold War is over. The military-industrial complex will continue to grow this year and every year after this. They will make selective cutbacks that are insignificant, closing down some bases that weren't used in any case, uh, mothballing some fleets, cutting back on a few armaments, but it continuing to expend on other more exotic elements. The budget goes up. No one sees that there is a, a paradox here. You bank company, a country, you take away from things that could help people like education and social security and preventive health programs and, and fixing our infrastructure, our streets and sewers and water systems and housing and helping farmers. You take away money from all those that are considered non-essential and you give it to a military industrial paradigm that has no one to fight. What are we going to go do, fight Granada again? Maybe they can find six more Cubans hiding in a you know, sugar silo down there and invade them all over again? But again, we would, and the public would, and the media would get right up. We are might, we are in, suddenly everybody go marching off like little toy soldiers. No matter what the paradox, as long as we have a Ronald Reagan or a George Bush or someone, Republicans love to start wars. They love it. Helps the business community. It's not a matter, mind you, it's not a matter of ethics. It's not a matter of morality. It's a matter of business. And business has no consciousness. If we did, don't you think we would have stopped selling toxic pesticides to third world countries? Think of the ethic. You will not eat DDT on your food because it has been proven and deemed dangerous. Yet we, as a nation, support corporations who make a substantial profit by taking these toxic chemicals and selling them to unwitting people in third world countries as if their life is less valuable than yours. Their children are less of a child and less to be treasured as a precious commodity than yours. Who is guilty? Everybody. Because we all support the paradigm. But again, I understand that because paradigms are the most powerful force in your life. They're more powerful than your mother or father, the priest or rabbi. They're more powerful than any of this. And going against the paradigm is going against a mountain that doesn't move. So at a certain point in life, you've got to realize you can't keep putting your energy there. You just go out and start living your own life. You pull away your economic investments from any company that supports any toxic chemicals or denatures or violates human rights or the land. You start buying the foods and products that support a healthier ecological and human system. You create a new paradigm. Individually, enough people create a new paradigm, you have a collective shift in consciousness towards that paradigm. It has, it has happened, it is happening. I believe we're on the threshold of a major shift. The fact that Time Magazine, albeit 25 years late, runs a cover story, gee whiz, guess what? Time just discovered vitamins. Wow, isn't that great? 
Time still hasn't discovered the second gun in the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> Nor is the New York Times. I don't expect the New York Times to ever find that there was a heaven help us a conspiracy. They couldn't handle that. Not out in East Hampton. East Hampton doesn't believe in conspiracies. What a world. Isn't it pathetic that we engage in this? And these are the people that shape our lives and we give them credibility? Yes, because we didn't know when to tell people, don't discount my reality. If I want to take vitamins because I find they're beneficial, it's my right, it's my body, I know what's right. You, the doctor, telling me that all I'm doing when I'm taking vitamin C is creating expensive urine, it's my urine, I want to create it, I'll do it. Get out of dysfunctional belief systems. Get away from them. Stop believing in them. Joan Rowland is 67? 66. Joan, Joan is not a 66-year-old woman physiologically or emotionally because she chose not to believe in the dysfunctional relations that people have with their society about aging. But she could just as easily be the average 66-year-old woman with those ugly little white haircuts that got purple in them, the kind of are bobby, you know, and, and the glasses, the kind of horn rim, and, and clothes that are dowdy and, and ugly, and kind of black and morose and dark. Hers are black and stylish. <laughs> She's showing a little cleavage and uh, she likes to wear her things tight in the races. That's fine. And she should. She has a beautiful body. Get up and get naked. Show us your body. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if you could see everybody naked? and you greeted him like a dog greets a dog. I'd love to see that. Start, and that's the way all political wars were fought. Politicians sniffing the opposition to death. I'm from Connecticut, Gary. I, I don't like that kind of humor. I don't either, Miffy, I'm sorry. How do we project our powerlessness? How do we project blame? You see what happens when we don't feel we have any power in our life, we almost always project it onto someone else. You go through life blaming other people for your powerlessness. And the moment I hear people blaming and blaming and blaming, I ask, so what? What are you doing? What are you doing to take back the power? Oh, what do you mean? Or you're eating junk foods, your kid, kids are eating junk foods, so stop eating the junk foods. Take the time and have the patience to explain to the children the consequences, and, but then take it away and give them something healthy in return and tasty in return. We, we can either be powerless or we can be powerful. Why do you think paradigms, all paradigms, have reward and punishment? Be obedient. Don't think, 
Just react and you'll be rewarded. Challenge us, you'll be punished. The strike breakers, John L. Lewis, the miners, they wanted healthier conditions in the mine, a fair wage. They were beaten and shot. The government supported it. When Henry Ford went out and massacred, literally, this man who we hail, we hail a murderer? His company went out, these people went out and killed people, the goons. The mobs were brought in. The mobs gained a lot of control within the automobile industry because of their willingness to inflict violence. And yet, we as a nation have supported this. We challenge someone's right to go into the military. We court-martial, we put these people in prison because they don't want to kill other human beings. And then when the war is over and we look at the rightness of it, we see that it wasn't right, it was economic all along, and all these people died for nothing. What'd they die for? For our security? Yeah. Where's North Vietnam? Is it our door? Is it, you know, bayonets, you know, in Southern California? No, never was. And they knew it all along. But what was good for the oil industry was good for America. So our foreign policy became our defense policy. And our State Department, Defense Department, our executive branch implemented it and conned the public into believing it. So all those guys who went over there believing in their paradigm and the images of the paradigm and the rituals of the paradigm sacrificed their life for nothing. Because it was for nothing. And think of all the ones who are sitting around today emotionally handicapped with post-war trauma syndrome or physically disabled. Now their egos are not going to allow them to think that they had all this for nothing, nor were their families think, well, they died for the country. Die for what country? Politicians should die for the country. The president should die from the company. <laughs> Death and injury should start from the top and go down. Amen. I want to see George Bush, the first person with a gun in his hand at the opposition. I don't want to see some kid from Nebraska who has got completely dysfunctional attitude about this country going in and dying, thinking that he's going to make a difference. For who? For what corporation is he sacrificing his life? I want to see the people at the corporate levels, the CEOs, fired and given nothing instead of taking three and five million dollar paychecks and firing 5,000 people at the bottom end. But we don't seem to understand this. Do you see how dysfunctional we are? We accept it. Corporation lays off 10,000 employees, executives get bonuses. Corporations losing money. Who made the decisions that caused the corporation to lose money? The guy on the assembly line? No. So why should he be blamed for the consequences? You see, it's, it's all upside down. The person who makes the decision, who is inherently selfish, as all CEOs are, who cares only about themselves and has no association with anyone else around them, is completely mercenary in the extreme, is totally dysfunctional in their spiritual value towards life, will sacrifice everyone below them as long as their interest is maintained. And so these people take these bonuses and let people who are just making enough to pay their rent and buy food for their family, they let those people bite the dust. And we accept this. And we continue to buy cars from those companies. 
I wouldn't buy a car from any American company. Not after. I won't support any corporation that loses money and doesn't fire its executives. I believe all executives should be fired who cause decisions that cause the loss of jobs for the workers. And by the way, it doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat. They're both pro-business, neither pro-workers. So if you don't have anyone speaking for the workers, the paradigm will not protect them. The paradigm merely uses them. They're merely fodder. They're fodder in wars and they're fodder in economics. And they're fodder in inner cities. When we hear about tough times in Washington, yeah, and we're giving $25 billion to another country, we're rebuilding a thousand buildings in Kuwait, where you've got a bunch of mongoose brain, you know, imperial family whose people rape, the, the police and army there rape the uh, uh, Korean women and the other women who are there. No one does a thing. And yet we have 25 million Americans on food stamps. Somehow this has been overlooked and I wonder why. 25 million Americans are, on, are, are at the <coughs> lowest end of the subsistence level. Who's paying attention to their needs? But you see, they're not economically important. And when you're not economically important, you don't count. You're an embarrassment. In fact, we'll even, through our unhealthy competition, we'll blame other people who are suffering for being lazy. You're lazy, you're a bum, get a job to a street person. Because what we're doing, we don't like what we're seeing in them because it's reflecting upon us. We don't even have compassion for people who are suffering. And compassion is the first primary virtue of spiritual development. How can you be spiritual if you have no compassion? You can't. And what politician, what lawyer have you ever seen who's had compassion? Greed, anger, hostility, warrior attitude, that's what you get. And that's what makes us feel powerless and we blame instead of taking away the power. Describe your healthy and your unhealthy bonds to your family and friends. By at least describing them to yourself, you can see what patterns of behavior have evolved from them. And because in all likelihood, whatever earlier patterns of unhealthy or healthy behavior, you're continuing them. Healthy, continue. Unhealthy, identify and stop them. Remember, the first rule in family development of overcoming crisis you do not have to justify anything at any time to your family when you are out on your own. It's your life, live it. I don't believe you should have to consult with, share with, get approval of anything from your family. And yet, being so obedient, you think you're independent, you'll take the boyfriend home, you'll take the woman friend home, as if, are they okay? Who's marrying them? You or your family. You don't have to get their approval. You want to change jobs, you want to move, you want to get a new career. What, what are you asking them for? It's not their life, it's your life. Now, if you have a functional family that's healthy, fine, and you want to share the joy of your growth and, and you want to share how happy you are, fine, they'll appreciate that. Dysfunctional people are not going to appreciate you because you're taking some assertive action to grow. 
They're going to continue to feel angry and continue to play on you in ways that are going to make you feel helpless and discount you so that you feel powerless to make the decisions. And if you do, you're going to feel a sense of loss, abandonment. And remember, if we weren't unconditionally loved as a child, our whole life we had this fear hanging over our head that we're going to be abandoned. And so therefore, the abandonment means we are alone and unlovable and unworthy. Our whole life is spent trying to get someone to love us. So we'll overwork, we'll become workaholics, we'll overstrive, we'll overplay. There's never any spontaneity. There's no the little child playing because the secret of the child is he can't or she can't be themselves because if they are, they're not acceptable. So everything is done to make someone else feel comfortable with who we are. So we adhere to their need for comfort and our need for being the compliant child, no matter how old. I've seen this behavior in 80-year-olds when it's just a game, but one that's a very vicious game. To be healthy, we have to stop the game. You don't have to be obedient to anyone, nor should you be changing your nature to make other people accept you. There are people in the world who accept you just the way you are. You just have to find them. And by the way, all the time and effort you spend on dysfunctional people, you think anything's going to change? I don't spend any time with dysfunctional people. You're dysfunctional? Fine. It's your right. It's your life. I'm going off find someone who is functional. I'm not going to justify it or even talk about it because there are thousand little games that you're going to play trying to discount my, my life, my reality. I'm not going to let you in. We have to have sanctities. We have to have boundaries. And we have to tell people, don't cross my boundary. You have a right to your opinion, but your opinion has no right to invalidate mine. How does stress affect our decisions? We live in a very stressed out society, and we have very few mechanisms that are healthy to alleviate the stress. If you're the average middle American who's in economic uh, discomfort, you're going to be looking at gladiators on Saturday afternoon. Bonzo-looking women talk like this. Yeah, my name's Elizabeth. What's yours? <laughs> when I'm wrestling on a first date? I mean, did you ever see these women? <laughs> you don't kiss these people at the end of the evening. You have shoving matches. See who gets off balance first. And we watch these people on television, right? And now they're all dressed up and they get more and more theatrical. Did you ever see these shows on television, you know, the, the gladiator show? What kind of society? Another year, we're going to have everybody dressed up like, like chimpanzees. We're going to come back completely primordial. We're going to regress back to the, the geome. Very, very strange, our culture. And we consider that a healthy, re well, let's relax and watch roller derby where they push each other off into alligator water. Yeah, they got alligators and water around a roller rink now. Watch them and think that's normal. Boy, this is lacking in stress. Will he get himself chewed today? <laughs> or we really show our sense of high-level spiritual and intellectual and creative appreciation. We watch truck pulling <laughs> through mud at a Coliseum where an announcer gets all these guys and women who look like guys all revved up to see a guy pull a tractor 
or roll over other cars. What's that saying? I proved my life by crushing the top of six cars in eight seconds. And we give these guys $100,000 for doing it. Strange world, isn't it? Getting stranger by the moment. <laughs> it's only when you see it for how strange it is. So you see, to me, looking at a, a person, an 80-year-old woman roller skating in Laguna Beach, that's normal. You know, that's normal. This other stuff isn't. Because the other is a joyful play. A person's playing with life. And you want to know something, a lot of what the hippies were doing in the 60s. I'm not talking about the drugs, but I'm talking just about the free colors, expression, and the dancing, and the music. They were trying to show a way of having fun with life, where their parents hadn't had fun, and let you know they hadn't had fun. I mean, they never smiled. They were always serious. They, they had sacrificed for you. We've sacrificed for you. So you can become as obedient and contrived and controlled and powerless as we are. And you, too, will have symptomatic relief of your hemorrhoids, <laughs> high blood pressure, gout, arthritis. And we will send you to the doctor. But you will be covered by insurance because we have every insurance policy ever made. We don't know how to say no. We have 3,000 insurance policies. And our house will get blown away because it's right in a hurricane lane. And we will never move because that would show something that's un-American. We have to prove we can tough it out. And we will get out there after the flood comes every week in the South, in Louisiana, and we will say, it went away, the house and all, lost everything, going to start over, and no one ever figures, why don't you build it up on drier ground? <laughs> and I wonder about this country. <laughs> yes, we built the house on the side of the cliff on an earthquake belt where there's <laughs> constant erosion. And we know that it may fall down, but if it does, it gives us a chance to be on television and say, we too lost everything. <laughs> so let's look at stress, because we know how we're not dealing with it right. And we used to think it was cool to smoke and drink. And we still do. I never see any movie where anyone actually eats a meal. Have you? I'm very stressed. I'm going to eat some broccoli and have some carrot juice and wheatgrass juice and pass the alfalfa sprouts. Brown rice. I like this meal. No, it's always a cup of coffee and a drink. They, like they never eat. I just saw this movie the other day that everyone in the movie was smoking or drinking. Never once did they eat. And when they do eat, you never see them eat more than one bite, and it's generally a hot dog or something like that. And no one ever eats for breakfast. It's coffee and out the door, or coffee as they're going out the door. It gives us a message, and that was the message how to deal with stress. You see, most Americans are addicted. We are addicted society, and that's why we're stressed. And we're addicted because of all the above, powerlessness, lack of bonding, lack of being loved, lack of being honest, lack of actualizing life. So as a result, we all look for something. And you know the one thing we're all looking for? What? Something more than love. Something more than acceptance. More than security, more than self-love. In the moment, we are looking for a 
euphoria. We're looking for a high. We're looking for a way to dull the sensation that comes from being aware of how unaware we are. We're looking for something that will take us away from the monotony of looking at the clock or the complacency of our life and predictability of our life. How many people do boring routine work when they could make their work challenging by inventing an attitude and instilling that attitude in their work? But instead, they will look for the high. So they look for something that distracts them from that. They accept that as a given that that's not going to change. So the coffee, the cigarettes, the alcohol, the cocaine, the marijuana, the crack, all of that is looking for the escape. The escape is the high. It is a moment to take them away from their pain. Why do you think kids on the street are taking crack? Do you think a kid on the street is taking crack because they feel good about who they are? Because they love their life, they respect life, they're able to engage in life? No. The kid who's taking crack is in pain. Taking heroin, they're in pain. An adult down on Wall Street taking cocaine, they're in pain. A politician coming out and going to a bar and drinking, they're in pain. The entire male Japanese nation crowding out of a subway at 9 o'clock at night and drunk as a loot or going home to get drunk, they're in pain. Women drinking, women gossiping, women sharing negative bonds and resenting anyone who's healthy or successful, they're in pain. We're in a very, very painful condition in our nation, in our world, and we've not sought any other thing to deal with the pain like an honest confrontation with what's causing it. So we'll blame the Coke dealers in South America. You want to know something? Take every Coke dealer in the world, put them in jail, and in six months you got just as much Coke back on the street. You don't resolve a crisis by dealing with the symptom alone. You deal with the cause. But to deal with the cause to acknowledge that our paradigm is wrong, to acknowledge the paradigm is defective, acknowledges that we have created a defective paradigm. We won't do that. We will not acknowledge our bias, our prejudice, our limited half-brain thinking. That is too painful. So we blame someone else. And there are a lot of people out there to blame. So we blame blacks, we blame Jews. We blame the poor, we blame the rich. We blame the foreigner, we blame the non-nationalistic. We blame anyone who's not a part of us. So half of all paradigms spend their time blaming others for why they feel the way they do. Therefore, we set up these artificial and unnecessary conflicts. And look at the world, we're in conflict. Everywhere there's conflict, constant conflict. I look at this political campaign and it is pathetic. It is pathetic. Did any of you hear me interviewing Hillary? Uh, Hillary. Uh, great this morning. By chance, I just speak with the radio. Are you always on this station? No. No, I, I was on a station this morning. I interviewed. Uh, I interviewed uh, Hillary Clinton uh, and asked her questions she hasn't been asked about dealing with the drug cartel and dealing with the FDA and dealing with the power brokers. And she gave some very straight answers. Trouble is, Hillary Clinton is too smart. She'll be a threat to the average woman. The average woman will hate Hillary Clinton. Do you know why? Why do you think we have no equal, uh, equal rights amendment for women in this country? When women make up the majority of those who vote? 
Women don't want it. Why don't women want equal rights? Why wouldn't Hillary Clinton be voted, uh, allowed, if she was an independent candidate, be voted into office? Why? What does Hillary Clinton have that the average woman hates? Independence, intelligence, autonomy, her own mind, and a willing to speak it. She's no one else's cow dow. She is her own person. Now, whether or not the issues she's speaking on are the right ones or wrong ones is secondary to the fact that she's at least independent enough to make herself known. And I also happen to believe that a lot of her feelings and statements are good statements. So they focus on the superficial. I don't care who he sleeps with. What's it matter? And who is anyone to judge anyone? Are you so perfect? Have you never thought a thought that was immoral or unethical that would embarrass you? Anyone in this room ever had, never had a negative thought? <laughs> Anyone in this room ever never did anything that you would feel embarrassed about the world knowing about you? I just would like to tell you my reaction as a woman this morning when yes. I heard the two of you. I thought, gosh, I never will vote for Bill Clinton, but if Hillary was running as a president, she would have my first vote in the morning. She would have yours and a very small percentage of the female vote. She would have the female vote who are like her, who would not envy her, who would not be engaged in negative, subversive competition. But unfortunately, when you are an addict, when you are dysfunctional, when you have never had a sense that you're good enough on your own, when you've lived as an extension of the male ego, when your whole life is based upon living by rules that have nothing to do with the female, the paradox, the intuitive, the visceral, the spiritual, the bonding and the love, when you have had only to accept that these are dysfunctional qualities of the weaker sex, then you will not vote for Hillary Clinton. But the woman who does understand that those are negative consequences and should share equally with the male and under not the male's terminology of how society be, but what is universally acceptable on a humane and spiritual level, that is a person who would be able to vote for Hillary Clinton. Otherwise, you would feel competitive. You would feel, you would feel that what she's done reflects on what you have not. Therefore, your life would be felt as if you were of no consequences. If she's done so much, then why haven't you? You're going to be viewing anything that she says that is standing up for something that may be controversial, may be right, as what you have never said because you've kept your mouth muted and have generally engaged in obedient, subservient uh, behavior so that you can continue to have some artificial bonding because you're terrified of being dislocated, disjointed, let go of, out or abandoned. Because some very, very early on when abandonment was a very real issue in your life and it was said in in subtle ways, be a good girl and you'll be loved, be a bad girl and bad girls don't go to heaven, bad girls don't get love, then you realize you had to keep the secret of your real passion, the secret of your real identity, the secret of your real joy inside of you. Your whole life, the secret was repressed. The only time it was ever, ever allowed out, when you had that moment, albeit many or few, when you connected with someone else who was expressing the same honesty, the same passion, the same openness, the same autonomy, the same spirit of creativity that you had been feeling. Therefore, you had a kinderedness and a cooperative spirit with someone else, no matter who it might have been. And that's why the initial feminist movement had a small catalyst. It still is a small catalyst. The ideals of the spiritual movement was 
of the feminist movement was not to deny masculinity, but rather to promote that which would make women equal in their own right to men in the workplace and in the life. That has never succeeded. And it hasn't succeeded because men are defeating it. It hasn't succeeded because women haven't supported it. The culprit and the evil is not the man. It is the women not affirming themselves. That's how much of a slave to tradition and dogma and paradox the women are in our society. We've been blaming men as if all the women's woes are due to men. Women's woes are due to the fact that they have not established their own identity and power structure. And those that have, the women are un absolutely unavoidably envious of. You show me a woman who comes into your life on any level who's attractive and successful and independent, and most women will resent her. Am I right or wrong? If you're honest, I'm right. So this is how we get ourselves stressed. We spend so much time preoccupying ourselves with about the life that someone else has. We read the soap operas. We watch the soap operas. We read the uh, trash mags about everyone else's life. Why would I be interested in someone else's sex life or anyone else's life? Because I don't have my own sex life. Why would I be interested in anyone else's success? Because I don't have my own success. People who are living life don't have time or interest in engaging in the purient uh, response to other people. That's the only reason you read this crap. The National Enquirer. What a rag. And five million or however many million people read that and soap operas. What ideals in soap operas? Treachery, adultery, murder, deceit, lies. And they can't wait to turn it on. That's a life that's not lived. That's a wasted life. And you got a lot more than those out there, men and women, than you have. And that's one of the women's way, again, of dealing with stress. That's their fix, their euphoria. That's their high. Participating in someone else's pain and discomfort can be an escape. And so why do you think so much of the news? And look at the news. Now, that's disgusting. And now all the news. 16 people burned today in a car wreck, nine were raped, three houses were bombed. More in a moment. <laughs> I can't wait, this is making me feel so good. Mutilation, castration, alcoholism, and anal retention, all found in Connecticut. <laughs> Biffy and Miffy were finally exposed. And we watch television. For what? And we read the newspapers. For what? Tell me something that's going to allow me to grow. Give me insight and information that's going to enhance me, not depreciate me, not assault me. That's the pornography. And you wonder why so many people are dysfunctional on all levels? What do you give them to be functional? Noisy. Well, our environments are noisy. We deal with stress in different ways. Let's go through a few of the ways that we deal with stress, or things that cause stress that we're not being honest about how to deal with. First, our family. So much of the time we feel stressed out because we're out of touch, or there are no boundaries, so we transgress. We just barge right into someone's life 
and assume that we had the right just to do anything, say anything, without respect for that person. That's in families because of familiarity. We either feel there's not enough quality time spent or that we don't make the quality time and we get stressed because we're not making the quality time even though we may want to make the quality time. Well, why aren't we? Because we're taking time somewhere else that is more of a priority than where it should be with our friends and family and self. That shows dysfunction. It shows that some need has superseded the real needs and the essential needs. And that's why we have to deal with stress when we see it and we can recognize it. Uh, ego direction, too harsh in relating, inflexible. These are all ways that stress is created. When someone is inflexible, doesn't want to be patient, doesn't want to hear, doesn't want to learn, doesn't want to change, doesn't want to acknowledge. These are things that happen in families. Then in living and working environment, Frequently, our environment is stressed because it's too small, it's too large, it's too noisy, it's too much financial responsibility. It's too hard to maintain, it's too time-consuming, it's too competitive, it's too permanent, it's too transient. All these are stressors that we have when we look at our environment. How many times have you said to yourself, God, I'd really like to enjoy life, but I'm so stressed out trying to maintain my house that I can't afford and my lifestyle, which I can't afford, or my rent, which I can't afford, that I don't have time to live. But when I get that time, then I will live. So we have this when if, or if when. If I can change something, then I will be able to live my life. But the trouble is it never happens. We don't know how to let go or change things. We don't know how to say, if this is too large a thing to maintain, then shrink it or get rid of it. Because we've tied so much up into it emotionally and we have too many other people who have access to us that determine you can't give that up. You need that to feel good about who you are. No, we don't. We need for them to feel good about our decision-making so we will keep things long after we should have given it up. So we are, we're too transient. We don't feel a sense of belonging. There's an interesting idea in life that a lot of people are pursuing, and it's a healthy one, and that is a lot of people spend a lot of their time trying to get away from home so they can find themselves and ultimately spend most of the rest of their life trying to get home. And think of how many times in our philosophy, our song, our literature, our fables, our sayings, our mythology, people are going home. As if home is where we want to be. And I remember in one of my travels, I was in a small town up in New England this last year, and it was in the fall. And it was a very beautiful time of year. And I was talking to a fellow as we walked off campus where I was lecturing who lived in this community. And, and I said, what brought you back here? Because this guy had told me that he had been out in uh, the Midwest. And he said, my whole life I spent working like a crazy person in computer sciences. And I never gave myself a break. I worked 15, 16 hours a day. Um, and then one day I realized I didn't have a life. I had a career, but I didn't have a life. And where my life was most important to me was going back to my roots. And there was always something in the back of my mind that was their yearning to return. He said, so I came back here, and I bought this old house on an old street. I spent my time fixing it up. My lifestyle is different. And now I spend time with my family and friends, myself, and I feel good about that. And I bought something I can afford, and I didn't get in debt, and I didn't buy something that was stylish, and I didn't uh, buy something because everybody thought it would be the right thing to do, and I didn't have to overbuy to prove my self-value or my 
my asset wealth. And now I, I give myself social responsibility time only to the degree that it doesn't interfere with my personal time. And I allocate my personal time so my friends, family, myself, my exercise, my intellectual, physical, emotional growth, all are covered. And my life isn't stressed. And I don't make one-tenth what I used to make, but I live a hundred times better life because I found I didn't need all those things for happiness. That's going home in the right way. Something in him as a child recognized that there was a comfort, no matter how functional or dysfunctional, in the family in belonging. And sometimes we have to go away from the helter-skelter, the massive, impersonal, cold and indifferent megatropolises that we're all drawn to because of the success and the lifestyle and the careers and the networking and all these other excuses we give ourselves for being here to a quieter and more comfortable and, and, and a more subtle place. And then we begin to reaffirm some of these old values. And all across America, people are returning home. Not necessarily to the home they came from, but an environment that feels like home. Because otherwise, we spend our whole lives feeling like transients. And it's not what you possess that makes you feel home. It's a place. And we all have to find our place. We all have to find where we feel we belong. And until that time, we're going to keep being shifty. We're going we're to have people in and out of our life. We're, we're not going to feel solid. I meet a lot of people in my travels who will tell me that they feel that they can never commit themselves to anything for any period of time. They always have one foot out the door in their relationships, in their work. Their mind and attention is never on what it is working on. It's always somewhere out there. And yet they're insecure, so they want to compromise. They want to have some stability, but then be out the door. And you can always tell these people because they're always in confusion. They're always in crisis. They don't know where they belong. They don't know who they belong with. And as a result, they never give full measure or full energy to anything or anyone. Wherever you're at, be there. Find a way of finding happiness and balance wherever you are. If I'm going to be with someone, they have my undivided attention. And if they don't, then it's a deceptive and, and, and an unhealthy relationship. I will only be with someone when I can be with them. And if I can't, I tell them, I do not have the energy at this moment to be with you and share it right. Otherwise, you're with someone and they know. You always know. You always know when someone is somewhere else with their mind. No matter what they're saying, or you can feel it. It's something that we know. It's that knowing without figuring out. And that's what science doesn't trust, medicine doesn't trust, and hierarchy doesn't trust, the intuitive. And yet the intuitive is what should guide us. It's the real teacher. It's the real sage. And it's in all of us. It's not out there. It's in here. But if you keep everyone so busy running around out here, they never go in here. They never search the heart. So we can change our work and living environment. We can change if we have too many financial responsibilities. We can cut them back. We can change things that are too time consuming. We can set priorities on time. We can change our career if our career is too responsible. If it's too limited, we can change it. If it's not the right one, we can change it. Too competitive, protecting the status quo, uh, having yet uh, to breathe life into it. Our career may not be paradoxical, or it could be so paradoxical. All these are crises that cause stress. 
that we're not addressing. It's easy to address these. You just have to be honest and allow the child in you to address it. Always let the child in you speak first because the child that still learns how to dance will be the child that will give you the honest answer. We just have to have the courage to follow what the child tells us. And all over America, I meet men and women, families, who are starting over or changing the paradigm and feel a lot better. And some of the changes they've gone through are tremendous. They are radical by comparison. We're also stressed by our relationships. Either they're too dominant or too submissive. We share different realities. And that's fine as long as you respect each other's reality. If I have a friend who's a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Jain, I have to respect that. I have to respect it in a non-competitive way. I have to be able to say it's okay for you to be who you are. And if anything, I could learn something from it. However, if I come from the traditional paradigm that says feel threatened by anything that's not exactly like your own, I must reject that and hence reject the person. And think of how many people in your life you've never had in your life who could have been a rich and rewarding part of that life experience because you rejected them without really knowing why. You look for excuses, you look for flaws, you look for the incidental so that you could justify removing that person. You never see the rich patronizing or befriending the poor. You never see the edu educated with the uneducated or the uneducated with the educated. The ugly with the beautiful. The sick with the healthy. Just look around you. You don't see this. People feel threatened by it. As a result, we stick with the very narrowly defined categories of what is allowable. Are we stressed because we are too dominant or someone is dominating us? If we are, get it out. Nothing is healed until you get it out. You cannot help a tumor. You cannot help an abscess unless you identify it. And that takes some probing. We have more time wasted and more felt in anxiety in getting to the problem than resolving the problem. And we waste our life in the fear and the anticipation of what's going to happen instead of just doing it. Sometimes our relationships uh, are too sexual, sometimes not sexual enough, sometimes not sexually pleasing because we haven't identified our true needs. Sometimes we're taken for granted, sometimes not enough quality time, sometimes we're smothered, sometimes the people are jealous or we're jealous, they're hidden agendas or superficial feelings or too intense or too vulnerable, too closed or too used. All these are reasons why relationships can be stressful. And yet each and every one of these can be addressed by simply being honest about what your real needs are and how you feel. Now, it doesn't mean that having something that's going to be said is automatically going to end or challenge your relationship. In fact, to the contrary, frequently by being honest about what you're really feeling, you enhance a relationship or work at home or family because you're being honest. And sometimes people will say, would you as I feel the same way? I didn't know that you know, you had that feeling. And especially men, it's very hard for men to express any of these areas unless the woman will allow them to do it without harsh judgment. Let me explain my idea on intimacy. And I certainly do not claim that it's unique or original. It's just my idea. 
For a long time, I have felt that we have had the wrong handle on intimacy. Frequently, intimacy to a woman is sexual. With the sex comes sharing something that they have been conditioned to believe is so personal and so private and so specific and so sacred that to share that with a man and hence give pleasure to the man, once again, the vehicle, the woman using herself to please the man to gain acceptance, is then an automatic response of commitment because you never give something that precious away. There is a condition to, a condition to it. It's a barter. I give you this, you give me commitment. Commitment is the same in our society as love. It's a sense of permanent acceptance. But of course, that's the wrong way to use sex, and it is the most common way. And that's why women who then have sex with a man, no matter how much they may feel in the moment, if there is not a commitment given, will frequently turn around and say, I felt abused, because they did not get what they were told would come from that. Men, on the other hand, are taught that the last thing they should give is their emotional commitment because that will reduce their autonomy. And for a man, autonomy and independence is the most crucial of all virtues. And as a result, men come from the point of view that sex is merely a physical reaction where you may care or not care for someone, but it's not spiritual. Women, that it's something that you should feel spiritual and emotional, but it's a commitment. Two completely opposite notions, neither of which have anything to do with intimacy. Real intimacy, I believe, is sharing that which is most precious and most honest about who you really are. Defining the inner being, the essence, the totality of yourself and saying, I want to share my deepest passion of life, the passion of my heart, the passion of my consciousness, the passion of my soul. That is intimacy because there is no boundary and there is no condition. It is not bartered. True intimacy cannot be bartered. True intimacy cannot be something that we, we give and take away. Now, to do that, however, you cannot have intimacy if one person gives that and the other person judges it. And yet the conditional person, the person who belongs to all these other patterns of behavior is going to come right back at you and say, you don't really believe that, do you? I mean, that's how you think? I mean, that's what you feel? Well, that's, that's not right. I mean, you, you, and suddenly your intimacy is shattered. You were open, honest. You shared your heart, your spirit, your soul, your essence, who you are, the reality of your inner being. You shared with another person. You were not protected. You were not disguising it as you had to disguise for your mother and father and school teachers and everyone else that you came into contact with in your life. You had to be someone for your in-laws. You had to be there and act as if you were interested in what they were saying. You had to be someone for your boss, and you had to share a particular person for your boss. You had to dress a certain way. When you would go out dancing at night, you would dress up in one clothes. When you go to church, another clothes. When you would go to a picnic, another clothes. When you would be hanging out at home, another clothes. 
everything changes based upon your needing someone else to accept you, not necessarily what you want to do. How would you be received if you wore to the synagogue what you wore to the disco or to a dance? Wouldn't be, and you know that. Therefore, you're sharing a conditioned self. You're sharing a contrived self. It is transparent. You can see through it. They know how to see through it, but everyone accepts the transparency. There is the, exception, uh, there, the, the acceptance of mutual denial. But when you're in a one-on-one -on -one relationship with someone and you want to be intimate, to share what is essential to yourself as a human being is not to be transparent. So the moment someone judges it, criticizes it, tries to correct it, uses it, then there is no more intimacy, no matter what is shared. You could share all the beautiful sex or good feelings in the world. You will have no intimacy and hence no connection. There will be no bond in that relationship. And think of the one thing that women and men do when someone else has not accepted them, they try to hurt them. They judge them. They ridicule each other. They will look for each other's flaws. And where do they look for the flaws? In what was revealed in the intimacy. So you take what a person had given you in trust in their most vulnerable moment and you use what you can against them. When you have done that to a man, do not expect that man to ever be intimate with you again. He will not. If you as a woman are intimate and a man abuses you, you will think long and hard before you ever trust another man to open yourself up to be that intimate again. So we suffer from a lack of intimacy, true intimacy in our society because we have betrayed everything on so many levels. I made a list once of all the people in my life that have betrayed me. Now when I say betray, I mean betrayed what is my essence, my sharing. 95% of all the people I've ever met or had anything to do with have betrayed me on levels I consider betrayal. That is how dysfunctional our society is. In fact, we talk about other people's intimacy as if someone else should know about it. Why should anyone else know about it? Could you ever be intimate with someone you couldn't trust? No. Could you ever really accept unconditionally someone that you didn't trust or who betrayed you? Could you? No. You could forgive them. We can forgive. We forgive all the time. The trouble is, we never know when to stop forgiving and say, why do I continue to accept you and trust you when you continue to betray my trust? If you don't have trust in a relationship, you don't have any relationship. I hate to tell you about this, but what are you sharing in a relationship if you don't have trust? How do you feel when someone betrays you? Does it feel good? No. You want to trust them again? To betray you again? Before I'd ever trust a person again who's betrayed me, they would have to earn my trust. And I would never, ever allow someone to betray me twice, ever. I don't care who it is. Because if I don't have trust, then I have nothing except a working business relationship with someone. And I'll keep it at that level. So you see, I honor trust. 
and I would never betray it. And I do not respect people who do. That's why I don't respect gossip, negativity, pettiness, hidden in negative competition against people who are successful with their lives because it shows you cannot trust those people because they don't trust themselves. And yet, we overlook this as if that's not significant. Friends, that is the most significant thing you're ever going to have in any relationship. Without trust and without intimacy in a relationship, that relationship is going nowhere. So anything else you think you're going to have in that relationship, forget it. It is not going to work. The self, we're stressed out because we have no direction or we are overly directed. We put all of our energy and time into one thing at the exclusion of everything else or we don't have any knowledge where we should be putting our time instead of putting our time on different aspects of our life. Remember, we should balance our life by putting our time and energy in all areas that are balancing. Body, mind, spirit, creativity, relationships, bonding, all of these are important, so we should put, balance it out. And if we don't have time to put all these, then we've overcommitted ourselves. And look where we've overcommitted, and that way you can take away the time for where you've overcommitted and put it into where it's more balancing. <clears throat> learning to say yes and learning to say no. Frequently we say yes when we mean no and no when we mean yes. Having the courage that we're going to be okay by being honest. And you don't have to be angry to be honest. Sometimes the only time we're ever honest is when we're so angry we can't hold back anymore and so we yell out something that it, taken out of the context of just being anger, nobody generally accepts. They just accept we're angry. They don't know that there's a truth in our anger. So then we try to distill the truth out of the context of our negative energy at the moment. Why can't we just be honest and be happy in our honesty? Why do we always have to wait till something builds up till we have to throw it in someone's face? Oh, I didn't know you thought that way. When did you ever ask? When did you ever care enough about what I think to ask me? And when did you ever accept anything that I said as being valid for me instead of me saying something so you could correct me? And that's what happens when you have imbalanced relationships. We have a dominant and passive model. <clears throat> Frequently, we're too lonely, too hyper. We need somebody, we're aloof, we can't express, we overly react, we never play or we play too serious. These are primary stressors. So we got to learn how the, to react appropriately and not always overreact. And that's because we're not expressing ourselves consistently enough. We have to have more consistent expression if something is healthy. We have to learn to play every day, not just on weekends, then when we overplay, not just on holidays. Make time in your day for play and make time for unstructured play. Make time to be a child again. It's very healing and it's very healthy. Are you motivated by artificial or real needs? How much in your life do you work for in your relationships or work or with family that are artificial needs and how much are real needs? Define the real needs of your life and you define your life and your path. Needs will change. Our paths change. Friends change, everything changes, and we have to be able to adapt to change, and change is letting go. We can mourn what we have to let go of, but once we've learned to let go, we can also learn to re-embrace. You cannot re-embrace something until you've let go of other things you are embracing. You cannot continue to embrace everything, otherwise you become a glutton. 
Not only does the body become obese when we are glutton, the mind becomes obese and stagnant and diseased. The person who travels far in life must travel lightly in life. We must learn that getting through life with a lot doesn't make us a winner. So we lighten our load when we learn to say no and let go. Say yes to that which takes us another step, even if we have nothing in our hands or pockets. That's why you should travel around and speak with people who've already been on their journey. It can give you confidence to start yours. That's it for tonight. Thank you.